0: Uh, When I was a kid, um, I grew up in Alaska when I was uh, 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. When I was about 13, a buddy of mine and I, we went out uh, scouting for moose. Uh, That was how we (laughs) ate up there because there were 400 people in my village. The only way to get there was by boat or plane, and so food was expensive, and so we'd hunt. That was how we put food on the table, and so we're out looking for moose before the season started, and So we went out into the wilderness and we're coming down this trail and there's this lake uh, probably about twice the size of this room and we can see across the lake there's this moose, big old beautiful rack, just a beautiful animal. So we kind of pressed out through the brush a little bit and we went and we looked at this moose for a while and, and we went back to the trail and we started walking down the trail and we heard just on this side of the lake though, we heard splashing. We're like, hey, it's another moose. How cool. So we We continue on and we're looking and there's this, you know, there's splashing going on, some rustling in the bushes and so we're looking up and we're trying to get to where we can see it but we're kind of on the same plane as whatever this is and we can't see but there's this little peninsula that we can kind of get out on and we can kind of look back and see where this is at and we still can't quite see the brush is pretty thick and so we're trying to get out there and suddenly the bushes are rustling right by us and it's not a moose, it's a grizzly bear (laughs) and he's you know, from here to the communion table away. And so we take our guns off. We have shotguns. We carry bear protection. This is what we did. I can't believe that I was 13. I'm trying to think. I have a kid who's 13. Would I turn them loose in the woods with a gun? No. But my parents did, so, uh, but that's the Alaskan lifestyle. Anyway, so we get up there, and as we had moved out onto this little peninsula to get a, a better view, We are surrounded now by water. We're out on this little cropping. And the bear had actually kind of moved towards us and around and essentially sealed us off. So we're backed up to the water, and the bear has now moved closer in. He's right in here, and he's just eating blueberries. He sees us. He doesn't care. He's got blueberries. He doesn't want people today. And so we're terrified. I mean, the adrenaline is just pumping. We've got our guns. We're ready. And what's going to happen next, Right? Well, we're yelling, hey, bear, that's what you do. You just yell all kinds of things to get him to go away. And he, you know, he keeps keep looking up at us. And it seemed like an eternity that we're stranded out here. We couldn't go, I mean, we're wearing boots and got, I mean, we're not going to go swimming. The lake's too deep. We're stuck. And eventually the bear just kind of lumbers off. And so we <laughs> sneak our way out to the trail through the brush. We can't see, but we can hear. We're just, we're ready just in case. And he goes and we get on the trail and we triple time it for the next mile Um, sweating and it's funny we sat down to take a break after going so far and this chipmunk happened to jump out and we're both like (laughs) ready to go poor chipmunk we didn't we didn't hurt him well in a similar way the, the people of god were backed up to the red sea remember they were cast out of egypt right and they're backed up pharaoh's armies are coming and they have nowhere to go they don't have weapons they don't have shotguns they don't have anything and they're stuck And this story, as we find in Exodus 14, it says When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would, have been, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see here today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And as you know, God did deliver them. He put the, the pillar of fire and smoke between the armies of Pharaoh and them. And then, meanwhile, Moses turned and lifted up his staff and stretched out his arm, and the seas parted. And the Israelites walked across on dry land. And the Egyptians followed them, and God closed the seas and destroyed all of them. The, the Bible says not one of them was left. And what's interesting about this story, this event. As God tells Israel over and over and over and over and over again to remember it. No less than 12 times in Deuteronomy alone. And when we look at the Ten Commandments, he mentions it two times in the midst of the Ten Commandments. In the first one, Deuteronomy 4, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Then in the fourth commandment regarding keeping the Sabbath holy, we read, you shall remember, you shall remember, this is like a sub-commandment within the commandment. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. God wanted them to remember that he fought for them against Pharaoh's armies. Now God wanted them to remember not only that, not just does he want them to remember that he fought for them? But he wants them to know and remember why. See, Israel came on another occasion to the Jordan River. And this time they're at the Jordan River, and, and they had been, you know, they left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, they wandered around in circles in the wilderness for a long time, and then they finally get to the Jordan River where the promised land is on the other side. And they have to cross the Jordan River. And God tells them why he's going to bring them to the promised land. Notice here how, what he says to do about remembering. Again, the, the idea here is what's, what's God calling them to remember? He says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been, a rebe- you've been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the, Lord, provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. And this is what God wants them to remember. Now, why does God do this? Why does he tell them to remember how they provoked him? One of my first jobs when I was uh, in high school was working at a furniture store, and the guys that I worked with liked to listen to country music, so I was subjected to their 80s country music, which actually I think it's okay now. But at the time, there's a lot of country music that I was not into. One of the the guys, Randy Travis, wrote a song, Digging Up Bones, right? And the question is, is, is God just trying to dig up bones here against the Israelites? Is he trying to unearth their past and try to hold this as some grudge against them? Is he trying to get an upper hand or trying to lay condemnation or find fault as a reason to withhold something from them. Well, we know he's not because he's about to deliver them to the promised land. He's not trying to withhold anything from them. He's trying to give them something, but he's still bringing this up. That might be what we do. That might be what I do. Hold grudges, bring them up so that we can withhold something from somebody. That's not what God's doing. Why does God do it? The summary answer that the Bible gives over and over is that the default mode of the human heart is to seek glory for itself and not for God. And when we do this, we become conceited and self-righteous and independent, and we believe the untruest thing of all untrue things that there are, and that's that we don't need God and that we are okay without him. There is no truth that you, untruth that you could believe that is more dangerous than that one. And so God continually reminds his people that you need me and that you're not all that. You think you're something and you're not. I'm something. You're not something. And you need to remember that. God gives life and breath and everything thereafter. In Colossians 1.17, it says he's before all things and in him all things hold together. There's never a moment where we don't need God because if he were to just take a step back, we would disintegrate. So Halloween's tomorrow. I'm sure you have kids who are excited. They got their costumes figured out. I have a friend who's <laughs> he's used CNC, no, a 3D printer to make props for the costumes for the kids. I'm like, this guy, he's, a, he's one of those guys who does that kind of thing. It was crazy. But kids all over our neighborhoods are going to be knocking on doors, right? As for me, I'm sorry. I'm going to shut the light off, and I'm going to go <laughs> do something else. So we live in a neighborhood. We get like 350 kids in our neighborhood. We're not up for that. But there's going to be a lot of door knocking. Well, 499 years ago tomorrow, on Halloween, there was somebody else who knocked on a door. On the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther posted a paper containing 95 theses that challenged the church's position on certain practices. This action, action accelerated a series of events eventually leading up to the trial of Martin Luther and what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. As Baptists, as Pro, uh, we are a subset of Protestants and we are consequently theological descendants of the Reformation, and in churches of all kinds that are Protestant this morning they're celebrating Reformation Sunday now in this this morning's uh, exercise I'm not here to create enmity between us and the Catholic Church I'm not here to beat them up that's not what I'm doing we're trying to unpack what was happening with Martin Luther and why we're Protestants and not Catholics because you are so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take some time to remember and look at Martin Luther's life, and we're going to look at just a little Catholicism, Roman Catholicism 101, kind of what was going on, and then we're going to come back around and look at what's going on with Martin Luther and why there was a conflict, and we're going to look at what are three doctrines that came out of the Protestant Reformation that we hold on to today, okay? So that's where we're going to go. So first, Martin Luther's biography. Uh, Martin Luther was born November 10th, 1483. He lived in Germany. His father was a, mi- a miner. Before that, he was a farmer, but turned to mining. His dad wanted him to become a lawyer, and so he put him to school where Martin studied grammar, logic, and rhetoric, earning a master's degree at the age of 21. He gained a reputation for being especially adept at the law, a very smart kid. One day, though, In 1505, he's coming back from home to university, gets caught in a thunderstorm, and lightning strikes just feet away from him. And he cries out, St. Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. Well, he made it home, and this oath he felt obliged to keep. So he withdrew from college, made his father very angry, and enlisted, submitted himself to the Augustinian order, and became a monk. Now, as a monk, he eventually was ordained in the priesthood. He continued his education receiving two bachelor's degrees and his doctorate degree and taught his faculty at the University of Wittenberg teaching theology. Okay, so that's what we're going to leave off for now. That's Martin Luther, what he's doing. He's teaching. Uh, he's a priest in the church, monk. He's teaching at the university. And we've got to look, in order to understand kind of what happens next in the story, we have to understand just some baseline Roman Catholicism. So here we go. <laughs> this is, this is going to be the longest introduction to a sermon you've ever had and probably followed by the shortest sermon you've ever heard, okay? <laughs> but, but here we go. Okay, there are seven sacraments important to the Catholic Church. Really quickly, I'll run through the seven. Baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and marriage. Okay, let's go back through these really quickly. Baptism is the sacrament through which original sin is eliminated and a person is regenerated and becomes part of the church confirmation is a point where you are sealed of the Holy Spirit and strengthened in your inner Christian life the Eucharist is kind of like communion for us but it's not uh, for us communion is uh, we take the bread and the cup as a symbol of the new covenant that Christ made with his church In the Catholic Church the wafer and the wine actually become through transubstantiation the actual body and blood of Christ that's what they believe they're partaking of so it's different and uh, Number four, penance. This is probably one of the most important to understanding what's happening uh, with Luther. Penance is a four-step process through which uh, you're reconciled to God after you sin. Okay, so step one is contrition. This was very important. We tend to think as Protestants that Catholics are just these kind of heartless people who follow all these rules. No, this was very important, that you had to have sincere contrition about your sin. Very important. That was step one. Step two was confession to a priest Then step three, the priest would absolve you of your sin. And step four, there was satisfaction of penance and so you would perform a bunch of Hail Marys or Our Fathers or give alms to the poor make restitution, going on a pilgrimage. There were a lot of different ways uh, to satisfy this. Number five, the sacrament of anointing of the sick. Um, This mostly has to do, if you watch any movies about World War II, there was the chaplain was running around the field giving last rites to guys who were dying. It's essentially what this is, is that if you were to die and you had uh, mortal sins that were not forgiven, you would go to hell. And so these guys would come around and give last rites. That was the idea. Okay, so that's one of the sacraments given to the church. The sixth sacrament uh, are holy orders. That's becoming a monk, becoming clergy, a monk, uh, a bishop, a priest. And then the last one is marriage. So those are the seven sacraments. And these sacraments were and are today still codified in official Catholic church doctrine. And from a Catholic perspective, the doctrine carries the same weight and authority as the Bible. Now, many of us Protestants think it's the Pope that maybe has all the supreme authority, and that's not entirely true. What it is is the councils that assemble to clarify and determine doctrine have this authority to establish through these codes, these councils, what the, what the truth of the matter is. And once they're written down, they are, and I'll quote, are to be accepted and venerated with the same devotion and reverence as Scripture. So the Council of Trent is one such council, and regarding these sacraments that we just went through, this is what that particular council said, and it still stands today, because these councils are irrevocable. Again, this is God speaking. If the, if the council says it, this is God's authority, right? So regarding the sacraments, if anyone says that the sacraments of the new law were not all instituted by Jesus Christ our Lord, or that they are more or less than seven, or even that any one of these seven is not truly and properly a sacrament, sacrament, let him be anathema. And we'll talk about anathema, what that means in just a minute. The second one says, if anyone says that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but surp... I can't say this word. Super- <laughs> this is a tongue tie. Surproof- Lewis, whatever the word is. Extra okay? And that without them, or without the desire thereof, men obtain grace through faith alone, the grace of justification through all the sacraments. Sorry, their wording here is terrible, but it basically says is, if you think you don't need the sacraments to be saved, let you be anathema, okay? So this word anathema comes from uh, the p- Apostle Paul used the same word in his letter to the Galatians. And he's telling the Galatians, listen, if somebody comes to you, an angel, me, it doesn't matter who it is, and they're preaching another gospel other than the one that you received, let him be anathema, eternally condemned, damned to hell. So the Catholic Church is saying, if you don't believe that these seven sacraments are instituted by God and are what they are, if you don't believe that you can be if you believe you can be saved outside of participating in these through faith alone then let you be anathema now I don't want to create a holy war brothers and sisters between us and the Catholic Church but here's the deal they don't believe you and I are going to heaven they believe that we're going to hell so that's why some of your Catholic friends may be trying to convert you to their church because they believe that you are destined to hell because you haven't participated your sins aren't forgiven because the priest has to do it through the sacrament of penance your sins are remitted by the priest when you come with a contrite heart and you confess your sins and he gives you absolution and you pay your penance so because we don't subscribe to that according to them according to the doctrines that's what they believe now I need to acknowledge just like in the Protestant church we've got people who believe stuff way over here we've got stuff who believe stuff way over here and there were councils in the church that people reject individually I have to acknowledge that there are people in the Catholic Church who may or may not agree with all of these things. But the council, the official council of the church says, this is what's true, this is what's accepted, this is actually the authority of God saying this. So a few more Catholic concepts that you're going to need to know. Let's run through these ones. State of grace, because again, we're, we're setting this up so that you'll understand what's happening with Martin Luther, okay? So just keep that in mind. I'm not just doing this so that, you understand what Catholicism is. We're trying to understand what was going on with Martin Luther, that we have a Reformation, that we have Protestantism. So, first of all, there's this state of grace. Okay? In the Catholic Church, there's this idea of a state of grace. And this state of grace is like being converted, in one sense. Um, you enter into the state of grace through the sacrament of baptism. However, this state is not an immutable state, which means that it can change. And there are two kinds of sins through which this may or may not change. There are venial sins and mortal sins, okay? And you're in the state of grace, but you can fall out of that state of grace if you commit mortal sins. If you commit venial sins, then you can remain in the state of grace, but a venial sin weakens grace in your life and it weakens your relationship with God. But a mortal sin actually destroys the grace of God in your life and you are now condemned to hell unless you go through one of the sacraments of penance through a sincere heart, and confess your sin and are remitted, and then you can be reinstated into a state of grace. You've probably heard fall from a state of grace before. That phrase, that's what that means. You fall from a state of grace, you go straight to hell, okay? Now, if you just commit venial sins, you don't go to hell. Instead, you go to purgatory. Now, purgatory is not, I used to believe it was just a synonym for hell, it's not, it's a, it's a time between after you die and before you enter into the kingdom of God where you are purged, purgatory, purgatory. It's a place where you are purged of your sins. And once you're purged, then you're fit to finally enter the kingdom. Now, only people who are in a state of grace go here. As I talked about, if you committed moral sins, you go straight to hell, you don't go to purgatory. Okay, I wondered. do we hear the, term, go straight to hell, it's kind of the same thing as saying anathema, right? You're not going to purgatory. You're going straight here, right? Okay, three more things to understand. Merits. Okay? Merits are credits that people earn that are deposited into the treasury of merits. The treasury of merits is a treasury of all the good works of both Christ and Mary and also the prayers and good works of all the saints. And these merits can be used to lessen punishment in purgatory. So you've got this treasury now the question is how do I make withdrawals from this treasury because if I'm going to be in purgatory I want to lessen my time there sure I do and the way this is done is through what's called indulgences okay and an indulgence is an act prescribed by the church that have performed rightly they earn withdrawals if you will from the treasury of merits and remit the sins on your own account so you have less time that you'll spend in purgatory or Indulgences can be earned for other people who are in purgatory. Now these are still in practice today and in fact the Pope in 2013 announced that those who attended the Roman Catholic Youth Day celebration in Brazil either in person or online or by following his tweets on Twitter <laughs> not making it up could earn indulgences. Okay? So you could earn indulgences and then lessen your time in purgatory by the things that the church prescribes that you can do and it was these indulgences specifically that were the subject of Luther's 95 theses okay so he didn't just go to the door and say here's 95 things i think let's talk about them it was specifically about these indulgences now three and, and it had to do not with indulgences themselves Luther was a catholic he still believed at this time that indulgences were fine it was just there were abuses going on and that's what he wanted to address. Okay? And so here are three kind of circumstances that intersected to create this this issue. The first are the inherent pitfalls of one of the um, penances that you can give and that's giving alms to the poor. Okay? So if you give alms to the poor you're supposed to do it sincerely but you now have money, possessions that you can give in order to lessen your time in purgatory. Now, almost all of the devout um, Catholics at the time recognized that this particular um, penance had pitfalls in it, because if you can kind of, just by having money, earn less time, the more money you have, the less time you can kind of buy back time, right? And so, this isn't what was intended. It was a known weakness in that particular thing, but they, given good uh, giving to the poor, there's nothing wrong with that. A, it's a noble thing. So that was one circumstance. The second one was that there was a manipulation of the masses in Germany going on, actually, all throughout Europe. See, the church in Rome wanted to ba- build St. Peter's Basilica, but they needed money to do this. And so they got a little bit loose with whether you had to be sincere or not to give these indulgences. And the Pope. Uh, At the time, he he commissioned administers and vendors of these indulgences uh, to encourage the sales of lands uh, so that you could then lessen your time in purgatory. Um, And what really infuriated Luther was that poor people were giving away their lands because there was this particular guy, this one guy in particular who would go in to the lands, he'd say, listen, consider the suffering and misery of your friends and loved ones who are in purgatory are you going to withhold material possessions here so that they can suffer longer? And he'd have a little jingle that he'd say at the end, for every coin that in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It was just this playful little thing he would say. Give your money. Drop it in the box. And we see this with hucksters on TV who call themselves Protestants all the time. Do this thing and you'll get more blessings. Okay? He's just... He's just proffering this stuff out. It was, it was terrible, and it made Luther sick because rather than lessening people's time in purgatory, he was like, this, you're gonna increase their time in purgatory. They're doing damnable things if they're giving alms this way. So that's what Luther was concerned about. The third circumstance was the pitfalls of relics. You've heard of relics before. If you've watched Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or Raiders of the Lost Ark, they're searching for the Holy Grail because this was a relic, and if this relic could be put into a church... What was going to happen on November 1st, the day after Luther posted these on that door, before, behind those very doors, were a bunch of relics. And people could pay a donation to go in, and you could see these relics, and then by that, by kind of paying homage and simply being reverent, kind of like we might do when we go to a, um, if we go to a a graveside on Memorial Day, you know, we stand there, we're kind of quiet, we remember, it's supposed to be this, this solemn remembering of, you know, God's faithfulness, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not just blatantly bad. It could be idol worship, but that was forbidden. But what they would do is they would get these relics, and this started to be abused as well because they would bring a splinter from Christ's manger or a splinter from his cross, or you've heard of the shroud that Jesus was wrapped in. If you were able to come to see this or the the bones of a saint, then this was a way you could earn indulgences. And so again, you're paying money to get in, to go see the relics and so this is what, what has Luther all wrapped around the axles because he's, people's hearts their motivations are being sullied by the very way that the church is going about this and so he puts the 95 theses on the wall now again Luther was still a Catholic he wasn't trying to divide the church he was a reformer not a revolutionary So much so that when he wrote the 95 Theses, he wrote them in Latin. He didn't write them in German because anybody could have read them. If they were in Latin, only the clergy and the people in the university could understand them because he meant for this to be an intramural debate. This was going to be something that we were going to talk about, us scholars, so we could try to reform the church and make the church better. Well, fortunately for us and unfortunately for (laughs) Martin Luther, the Internet happened. happened in 1500. Well, the 1500's equivalent of the internet. See, Gutenberg, a few decades earlier, had invented the printing press. And Martin Luther's students had gotten a hold of his 95 Theses, and they went and write them down in German. Then they went to the printing press, and they started printing them off. And thousands of copies were made, and they spread throughout Germany. And within a month, they were all over Germany. Within a couple months, they were all over Europe, including Rome. So it's not an in debate anymore, is it? (laughs) Luther's in a little bit of trouble because he poked the bear. <laughs> He's in really big trouble. And we're going to fast forward here and just say that this all came to a head at the Diet of Worms, which is not the same as that book, How to Eat Fried Worms, that you might have read as a kid. A diet was simply an imperial council, and worms, or worms, if you s- say it the right way in Germany, it was the c- city that it was in. Okay, so there was an imperial council in Worms, the Diet of Worms. And the Holy Emperor of Rome, Charles V, and the Archbishop, John Eck, presided over the council that included several electors also. And they're here to determine, is Martin Luther a heretic? And the Archbishop opened the hearing by pointing to a large pile of Luther's books and asking him whether the books were his and if he would retract the doctrines he espoused in them. I think the books are mine, Luther said. And then the titles of the books were read, and Luther said, yes, the books are mine. When asked if he would retract, Luther answered, saying it would be rash and dangerous to reply to such a question until he had meditated in silence, lest he incur the anger of the Lord. So the archbishop gave him until the next day. The next day, he was pressed again, and he wanted to give reasoned answers. Luther really wanted to still have this debate, still have the discussion. And they said, no, we've already established that the books are yours. We've already established that the doctrines are heretical. We're asking you, are you going to retract plain and simple. And so Luther replied, since your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer, I will give you one. Unless I am convicted of error by the testimony of scripture or by manifest evidence, I cannot and will not retract for for we must never act contrary to our conscience. Here I stand, God help me. Amen. Now in the end, the church ended up excommunicating Luther, deeming him a heretic and issued a decree calling for the burning of all of his books and that anyone opposing the decree would be guilty as well. Luther was called to be arrested and the decree forbid anyone from harboring or helping him. Now Luther was kidnapped by a gang of abductors who actually weren't kidnapping him. They wanted to hide him, but they staged a kidnapping and they took him to the castle in Wartburg And while he was here, he translated the Bible from Greek, the New Testament from Greek into German. Now, there were other reformers that were important to this Reformation. Last week, Dan talked about William Tyndale. Tyndale was burned at the stake for translating the Bible from Greek into English. Again, because, well, I'm not going to get into that. (laughs) Okay, but there were other reformers John Calvin, John Knox, Martin Bootser, Thomas Cramner. There were a lot of other reformers but Luther seemed to be kind of at the center of the firestorm. And in the end there were several specific doctrines that marked and defined the Reformation. But there are three big doctrines that I think are takeaways for for us today because these are the legacy that the reformers left us. Those three doctrines are these. The priesthood of all believers Number two, the authority of scripture alone. And number three, and the most important, justification by faith alone apart from works. So let me quickly go through these. The priesthood of all believers. On this doctrine, the reformers rejected the idea that the pope and the priests were the only arbiters of God's forgiveness. The priests granted in absolution through the sacrament of penance forgiveness, and they were the only ones, according to the Catholic Church, who could grant forgiveness. But we read in 1 Timothy 2.5 that Christ alone is the one mediator between God and man. And from the Reformers, we maintain that the Catholic priest has no authority to forgive sins. Only Christ can forgive sins. And through Christ, we have been given direct access to God. In 1 Peter 2.5-9, it says, We find that we are called a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are are priests. Second doctrine, the authority of scripture alone. On this doctrine, the reformers rejected the high authority of the councils and maintained that the Bible alone was the only supreme source of authority in all matters of doctrine and practice. As the Westminster Confession states, and this is like the Protestant Council, but we don't hold it at the same regard as the Catholics do. This isn't the word of God. This is just us trying to clarify doctrine, but If we find this to be an error, we change it. We're not bound by it. But it says the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So the priest of it all, believers, the authority of Scripture alone, and then lastly, justification by faith alone and now we're ready to start the sermon okay <laughs> so if you could turn to Galatians 2 15 through 16 Galatians 2 15 through 16 It says this, what I want you to pay attention to is the, the idea, the, the word justified, it appears three times here, the word justified and then faith and works. We're talking about faith and works and what they play in justification, okay? Because again, the Protestants believed in justification by faith alone apart from works. So it says, this is Paul writing to the Galatians, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now note that word justified. You see, in the Catholic Church, they used the Latin Vulgate. They used the Latin Bible. And the word for justified Eustificare in Latin means to make righteous. But the word, so because of this, because it means to make righteous in Latin, it means you needed to actually be righteous. Now you and I know that though we're saved, we're not actually righteous. We still sin, right? Practically speaking, we are not actually righteous. We are still sinning. And so for Catholics, works need to be performed and punishment endured in purgatory in order to actually be made righteous before you can enter the kingdom of God. And that's what purgatory is for, is to actually make you righteous. The Protestant view is different. And if we look at the Greek meaning of the word from the original manuscripts, the word justification, we see that it doesn't mean to make righteous. It means to declare righteous or to count as righteous. And this is where the heart of the gospel beats the strongest and why Luther and Protestants who care about the gospel make a big deal about this. See, in the Catholic tradition, if you remain in a state of grace by avoiding mortal sin, then you can at least make it to purgatory where you can endure the punishment for your sin minus the merits and indulgences you've earned through your works and then once you've finally paid, you're granted entrance into the kingdom. So you are justified by your faith plus your works. But as Protestants, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works. We believe that when Christ died, he paid the penalty for all of our sin. We deserve to die for our sin, but he died as our substitute, and his death is now counted as ours. We didn't die, but his death is counted as our death. So we were supposed to die. We've died now. We're dead. We're dead. You're supposed to die. You're dead. It's done. It's done. The punishment has been accomplished. The Catholics are right. We do need to be righteous to enter the kingdom of God, but we cannot earn this righteousness. Rather, Christ's righteousness is counted as ours. His death is counted as ours, and his righteousness in the same way is counted as ours. God makes us righteous by declaring us righteous because Christ's righteousness is what's called imputed to us. In Romans 4, 3 through 5, You can turn there. We'll leave that passage in Galatians, Romans 4, uh, 3 through 5. I think we probably have this one up here. Yep, or you can look on the screen. Okay, so pay attention here. It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, is counted as righteousness. So let's, I'm gonna read that a little slower. Watch. Abraham believed God. So Abraham had faith. Again, we're looking at faith, works, and justification. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, so the person who's not doing faith, but doing works, his wages are not counted as a gift. It's not grace. It's not given as a gift, but he's earned it. It's his due. This is what he has coming to them. It's due to him because he worked for it. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness, not his merits, not indulgences, not time spent in purgatory. Faith alone is counted as righteousness. When Adam sinned in the garden, his sin was imputed to his children and to their children and to us. We didn't sin in the garden. You weren't there, but you're counted as a sinner, right? You're counted as a sinner, but you weren't in the garden. In a similar way, you didn't perform acts of righteousness, but through Christ, you are counted, considered, credited with his righteousness in the same way. And so you are now given the righteousness through imputation. You are given the righteousness of Christ. So now... You don't have to go to purgatory because you are as perfect as Christ was perfect because his righteousness is your righteousness. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone upon the work of Christ alone. We read in Romans 5:18 therefore as one trespass Adam's led to condemnation for all men so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men so as by the one man Adam's disobedience the many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So when we started this morning, we begin by noting the importance of remembering and that God has reasons for us to remember why he's delivered us and how he's delivered us. And he's especially keen to make sure that we understand that he is the one who has done the work of our deliverance and that we never deserved it. he remember... <laughs> Moses tells them on the bank of the Red Sea, he says, all you have to do is be silent. And God did everything else. In the same way, we don't earn, there's no way for us to save ourselves. There's no way for us to get out of the predicament we're in. Our heels are backed up to the corner. The weight of our sin holds our feet down so hard that we can't shuffle away lightly from the edge. We're going to go in. And the enemy, the devil, is coming, and he wants to push you off into the ocean of God's wrath. That's all he wants to see. And God knows your predicament, and you don't deserve it because everything that you're about to get, you deserve. And he comes in, and he whisks you up, and he takes you off and saves you. We're saved by grace through faith. By grace because we were enemies and by faith because there are no works we could perform that could merit his love. Now I want to get practical for a minute. God help me as we do this. Um, We might think that we don't do uh, the works that the Catholics do. That we're not like those bad Catholics over there doing works but we're pretty good at setting up our own mechanisms of justification we're actually really really good at it we're especially good I think at not just seeking justification before God we can set up mechanisms for that but we want to be justified before men and so we make make up our own little rules about what it means to be justified before men and then we commit idolatry because we want to be justified before men instead of God and so we're worshipping man instead of God And so we're not immune from these things that we might derail Catholics for. We got our own set of problems. And we need to be careful. And here's a case in point. (sighs) Okay, this political season is a mess. Okay, can we just acknowledge that, that this political season is a mess? But what's worse is when I see us as Christians sitting in judgment on one another for the positions that we hold. And it's not that we can't have reasonable criticisms for positions, but what I see a lot of times are we've got, for example, we've got Trump supporters over here saying they they can't believe that Christians wouldn't vote for him because don't you see the outcome that's gonna happen if you don't? You've got never-Trumpers over here saying, I can't believe you would ever vote for him. If you were a Christian, how could you ever do that? And when we put that, if you were a Christian, you would vote for him. If you were a Christian, you wouldn't vote for him. You start s- you see what's happening there. You're saying you're an actual you're a Christian if you do. You're not a Christian if you don't. I'm sorry. We are saved by faith alone, not by how we vote. We are saved by faith alone, not by how many likes we get on Facebook. We're saved by faith and grace alone. Not by how well our kids do in school. Not by whether we've chosen to homeschool them or public school them. By faith and grace alone, on the merits of Christ alone, are we justified. We are justified before God on those merits alone, and we are justified before men on those merits alone. There, there's no other approval that we need that's higher than God's approval. And when we turn and try to make s- ourselves look good before men because we want to posit the, the best reason for why you should do this or that, it doesn't matter what the this or that is, when that becomes our burning issue and the thing that we get worked up about, we've lost our way. We have lost our sense of what's really happening. Our struggle is against the principalities and powers that we can't even see. And we're forgetting what's truly important, that there's a kingdom that it doesn't matter what America does. We want to pray for this nation. We need to repent, if I'm honest. That's probably the main thing we need to do is we've got the leaders we've got because God's probably judging us for not repenting. And so we need to repent and seek God to help us. But that's not the main thing we need help for. Our mission is not to make America great again. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that's not a slam against her for Trump. That's not that was accidental. <laughs> it really was. Our mission is to is to push the kingdom of darkness out. Soul by soul, act of love by act of love, that's what we're called to do, that's our mission. And that's what we should be excited about. And part of that mission is to proclaim this message of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, on the merits of Christ alone, to people who are lost and on that precipice, about to fall into the wrath of God, feet heavy with sin and unable to help themselves. And we have a message of saying, there's help. All you gotta do is cry out and be silent. There's no work for you to do no work. It's just faith. Now this does not mean that we can live any old way that we want to. A person who has received deliverance from God is a thankful person. A person freed from the law of sin doesn't return to slavery in sin, but instead abides in Christ and in his spirit. And this abiding inevitably, though gradually, Produces the fruit that the law required. Not because it produces the fruit because the Spirit who made the law is now living in you. And so the law is not a means of attaining righteousness. The law is something that it gets expressed through your life because the Spirit who made the law is living in you. And so, as Dan's been talking about for the last several weeks, all we do is abide. We abide in the vine. And the fruit, inevitably, because we're in the Spirit, the Spirit's in us, is going to produce that fruit, but we have to abide. We have to pursue holiness. That's what it means to abide. We can't just go, I'm covered by grace. I can do whatever I want. That's not how we live. That's not what the message of the Protestant Reformation was that you can live however you want. Although that's how people believe that that's what we teach. We pursue this abiding with Christ not as a means to righteousness but because of righteousness and we do it by grace alone through faith alone for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven this morning we come to you thankful that you have uh, gone before us and sent uh, people into this world who you have used to purify your church and to maintain the gospel and to give us uh, the hope that we have in it. Uh, God, I just pray that this message this morning would settle rightly on our hearts. If I've said anything erroneous or, or out of step with your spirit that you would just help your people to discard it and they would cling to what is important and what is true and what is good. God, we are thankful this morning that we have been delivered and that we can come to you freely because you are our high priest and you have given us access to the Father. And we can come to you boldly because you love us as a Father and, and not as a judge. And by your grace, though we were enemies, you welcomed us in as a gift and the faith even that is a gift you've given to us so that no one can boast that we would not be conceited. I pray you would guard us, Father, from conceit and from pride and from self-righteousness this morning that we would be good and faithful witnesses of this gospel of our good Lord and King Jesus. Amen.